This week, Cengage and McGraw-Hill announced merger of equals. Vanguard cases may be headed towards valuation fight. PG&E and FERC saga continues. PHI stakeholders agree on plan mediation. More on all this and, as always, updates from Puerto Rico. Welcome to the Week in Reorg. Hello, and welcome to the Reorg Weekly Podcast, where we bring you the latest top developments in high-yield, distressed debt, and bankruptcy. I'm Connor Skelding, reporter for Reorg in New York. And I'm Karen Lung. Later this episode, I'll talk with the Hexion coverage team. That's legal analyst Sean Daly, distressed debt analyst Mark Gardner, covenants analyst Peter Washkowitz, and Connor. It's Sunday, May 5th. On Wednesday, education companies, Cengage and McGraw-Hill Education, agreed to combine an all-stock transaction under which existing shareholders of the two companies would retain 50% of the new combined company. The new combined company is anticipated to be named McGraw-Hill, with details to be finalized prior to closing. This company would be led by current Cengage CEO Michael Hansen, while Nana Banerjee will continue to lead McGraw-Hill through the transition. The companies provided pro forma estimates for the 12 months ending March 31st, including cash revenue of $3.157 billion and cash EBITDA less prepub of $889 million. The pro forma cash EBITDA includes $300 million of, quote, cost synergies, the press release notes. The combined company would have pro forma net leverage of 4.5 times. On a conference call to discuss the merger, management confirmed that it's structured in such a manner that it would not trigger a change of control under either Cengage's or McGraw-Hill Education's outstanding bonds. Management further confirmed that the structures would be consolidated, quote, into a single tower rather than allowing each tranche of bonds to remain at separate silos. The company launched an amend and extend transaction to refinance their outstanding bank debt, which, according to sources, would combine the existing $1.7 billion Cengage and $1.7 billion McGraw-Hill Education term loans into a single $3.3 billion Covenant Light First Lien loan maturing May 2024. The margin of this loan would increase to L plus 500, compared with L plus 425 under the Cengage loan and L plus 400 under the McGraw-Hill Education loan. A lender presentation is scheduled for Monday, May 6th, with commitments due May 16th. The parties in the Vanguard Natural Resources Chapter 11 case may be headed towards a valuation fight. Judge David Jones granted final approval of the debtor's $130 million dip facility during an omnibus hearing on Tuesday, during which counsel to the second lien ad hoc group previewed that the group, quote, strongly believes that the debtor's PDP, PV10, is worth, quote, more than $1.1 billion. Therefore, said John Higgins of Porter Hedges, the second lien group may be, quote, forced to challenge the plan and the debtor's valuation at confirmation, which the court has scheduled for a hearing on July 10th. The Vanguard debtors filed their plan and disclosure statement prior to the hearing, and according to Higgins, through the plan, the debtors, quote, are basically assuming that the first lien holders get to take all of the value out of this case. The second lien group will soon begin preparing for what he called a confirmation battle. Philip Eisenberg of Lock Lord proposed counsel to the UCC briefly remarked that the committee has also retained advisors to focus on valuation. Meanwhile, debtors counsel from Kirkland and Ellis said at the hearing that the debtors expect to receive signature pages to the recently announced plan support agreement from over 90% of the debtors funded debt structure. 
Aparna Yanamandra from Kirkland said that once executed, the PSA would reflect the support of holders of more than two-thirds in amount and 50.1% in number of RBL and secured swap claims as well as term loan claims, including the first-in-last-out group. Vanguard senior note holders and the UCC, however, have not signed onto the RSA. A few items of interest in PG&E this week. The company disclosed in its 10Q that it's under SEC investigation over, quote, public disclosures and accounting for losses associated with the 2017 and 2018 Northern California wildfires and the 2015 Butte fire. The company said that it became aware of the investigation on March 20th. The SEC declined to provide more information in response to a request from Reorg. On Thursday, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission filed a statement in the PG&E case notifying the bankruptcy court of FERC's order the previous day denying PG&E's request for rehearing of a January 25th order from the commission. In the January order, FERC had concluded that it has concurrent jurisdiction with the bankruptcy court, quote, to review and address the disposition of wholesale power contracts sought to be rejected through bankruptcy. In denying rehearing, FERC emphasized that FERC and the bankruptcy court have, quote, distinct yet vitally important roles. The commission said that FERC's role in, quote, evaluating the rates, terms, and conditions of wholesale power contracts is to protect the public interest, while the bankruptcy code's purpose is, quote, to provide a path to rehabilitate bankrupt debtors. In more bankruptcy court action, the Utility Reform Network, or TURN, continued to push for an official ratepayers committee, submitting a reply to the court, to PG&E, the USTs, and the UCC's objections to its motion for such a committee. PG&E also reported first quarter 2019 earnings, disclosing a 3.3% EBITDA increase to $1.422 billion for that period, alongside a revenue decrease of 1.1% to $4.056 billion for the period ended March 31st. Also this week, San Diego Gas and Electric filed a petition with the U.S. Supreme Court seeking review of California state court decisions upholding the state's strict liability application of inverse condemnation to privately owned utilities. The issue of inverse condemnation could be a key driver of the feasibility of any PG&E Chapter 11 plan and was a central aspect of Governor Gavin Newsom's strike force report issued April 12th. Closing out the week on Friday, Judge Dennis Montali said that he expects to issue a decision on the PG&E debtor's requested preliminary injunction against FERC, quote, in the coming weeks. In PHI, after the official Committee of Unsecured Creditors filed a motion seeking standing to pursue claims against CEO L. Gonsolin and his affiliate 32 LLC last weekend, parties in the case returned to the bankruptcy court for a hearing on last Monday. A key item on the agenda was the PHI debtor's motion for plan mediation. Later, during Monday's hearing, debtor's counsel, Thomas Califano of DLA Piper, disclosed that the debtors had reached an agreement with the key case parties regarding a plan-related mediation process, thereby resolving the debtor's motion for an appointment of a mediator to facilitate plan negotiations. As part of the agreement, the parties have agreed to adjourn the debtor's May 13th disclosure statement hearing and the hearing on the UCC's recently filed standing motion to May 29th. Califano noted that mediation is to start, quote, as soon as possible, with participants including the debtors, 32, the UCC, and the indenture trustee. Judge Hale, however, said the official equity committee should also be permitted to participate in the mediation process. 
In addition, the parties have agreed to a litigation standstill, except that the UCC would be permitted to file by May 29th a motion to terminate the debtor's exclusive period to file and solicit a Chapter 11 plan. For the debtor's part, Califano did announce at Monday's hearing that in order to resolve certain plan-related concerns, including those raised by the UCC, the debtors have agreed to eliminate the rights offering provision and the discounted buyout from the previously filed version of the plan. He added that as a result of the elimination of those two features, there would now be a, quote, simple equitization under the plan. Turning to the island of Puerto Rico, it was a busy week for the PROMESA Oversight Board, which this week filed various complaints against government contractors, bond underwriters, and municipalities, among others, to recover billions of dollars that the board said were improperly obtained. One such complaint filed by the Special Claims Committee of the Oversight Board and the UCC in the Title III cases seeks to claw back more than $1 billion from bondholders, which the plaintiffs say were issued in excess of Puerto Rico's constitutional debt limit. The complaint targets an A-list of underwriters, including Goldman, J.P. Morgan, Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, and Citigroup, along with several swap counterparties and a single law firm, with what it characterizes as the failure by Government Development Bank for Puerto Rico to, quote, be the steward of the Commonwealth's fiscal health, and, quote, the exploitation of GDB's misfeasance by the defendants for their own profit and unjust enrichment. The complaint charges that the GDB's, quote, misfeasance culminated with the issuance in 2014 of $3.5 billion in principal amount of bonds backed by the full faith and credit and taxing power of the Commonwealth. Because the Commonwealth was clearly insolvent at such time, such proceeds and profits are recoverable as fraudulent transfers, according to the complaint. The plaintiffs say that the GDB, quote, was aided and abetted in the breach of its fiduciary duties by the defendants, each of whom had knowledge that GDB was breaching those fiduciary duties. The board separately said it has filed more than 230 complaints against individuals and entities to recover payments made by the Commonwealth. The adversary proceedings assert claims for payments totaling approximately $4.2 billion. A press release from the board contends that such payments were, quote, in conflict with the United States Bankruptcy Code and Puerto Rico law. Also on Tuesday, the PROMESA Oversight Board said that the government must take immediate action to secure a $340 million reimbursement from several municipalities and public entities that have failed to satisfy pay-go pension obligations for their retirees or failed to deposit payroll withholdings to their employers, or rather their employees, defined contribution retirement accounts. The Oversight Board gave the Puerto Rico Retirement Board until May 10th to confirm that all individual employee payroll withholding debts will be settled within 10 days and to submit a list of unrestricted bank account balances for each delinquent entity. And lastly, U.S. President Donald Trump announced Monday night his intention to nominate the seven current members of the PROMESA Oversight Board, quote, to fill out the remainder of the three-year terms to which they were initially appointed in 2016. Other top red stories this week were Breaking, New Kotai files Chapter 11 in Southern District of New York. Windstream files 8K detailing 2019 financial plan, including projected 2019 OIB DAR of $1.76 billion. CPUC issues proposed decision approving PG&E wildfire mitigation plan. And here's Jim Holloway back this week with The Week Ahead.
Well, hello everyone. This is James Holloway in the great city of Houston. And folks, I ain't going to try to put any lipstick on this wild hog of a week because it's going to be busy. Primarily with, you guessed it, earnings. A great deal of earnings. So many earnings that even more so than usual, this is a really good week to look at our weekly calendar, which is released every Monday. And that's going to have all the links and detail that you need. But here's some highlights. And yeah, it's a lot. Monday, May 6, earnings from Bausch, the Canadian pharmaceutical company once known as Valiant. Hertz, the rental car people, and Tidewater, the, o, the offshore service vessel people. There's also a combined plan and DS hearing in Jones Energy. Tuesday, May 7th, earnings from ATD, Dean Foods, Denbury, Transdime, Parker Drilling, and Scientific Games. Hmm, there's also a sentencing hearing in Pacific Gas and Electric. Now, that sounds ominous. Now, don't it? Wednesday, May 8th, Weatherford. That should be interesting. Chesapeake, Foresight Energy, and after the close, EP Energy. And Thursday, May 9th, we have the earnings call for EP Energy. The last one sure was memorable. Let's see if there's a repeat. There's also earnings from Indo, Avaya, Chaparral up there in the Scoop Stack, Comstock over there in Haynesville, Louisiana, Ultra Petroleum further up there in Wyoming, and the non-energy names, Unity, Cumulus, and Urban One. And lawyers, sorry I've neglected you. My apologies. Here's one for you. Vanguard Natural Resources, continued hearing in that case. Friday, there's earnings from Quorum, and a DS hearing, another one for the lawyers there, DS hearing in Ditech. And that concludes my remarks. Thanks, and back to y'all there up in the north. Hi, this is Karen back again. We're very excited today to sit down with the coverage team for Hexion. Distressed at legal analyst Sean Daly, distressed at analyst Mark Gardner, reporter Connor Skelding, and senior covenants analyst Peter Washkowitz. The team is here with us today to share highlights from the case so far and some of the most interesting issues that have come to light. Hexion is a Columbus, Ohio-based maker of resins and coatings that filed for Chapter 11 on April 1st. So it was a very happy April Fool's Day in the reorg office and restructuring world. Hexion had a debt load of about $3.7 billion and a restructuring support agreement in hand on the petition date. In just over a month, the Chapter 11 case has seen plenty of action, with the filing of what the debtors called a complicated dip motion. More on that in a few minutes, as well as the appointment of an unsecured creditors committee and the debtors filing of a plan and disclosure statement. Hexion also filed motions to assume the RSA and enter into equity and debt backstop agreements. We should mention that the team here is covering this fascinating case from every angle. And we really encourage subscribers to check out their pieces on the latest news. That includes a story just this past week on the second day hearing and final dip hearing before Judge Gross. Also in the works is a waterfall story that is coming out very soon. Let's jump right in. Thanks, Karen. Uh, so Hexion is a chemical company. It's based in Columbus, Ohio, uh, but it has operations on several continents. It was formed in 2005 through the combination of several companies, and it's controlled by Apollo Funds. It has two major operating segments producing thermoset resins. One is the epoxy, phenolics, and coating resins. Uh, the other is the forest products division. Now, if you look at the company's uh, historical performance, you'll see that revenue fell significantly uh, over the five years leading to April 1st. Uh, 
They had $5.1 billion uh, revenue in 2014 uh, and 3.8 in uh, 2018, with particularly significant declines uh, in 2015 and 2016. Uh, EBITDA suffered as well. Facing April 2020 maturities on its ABL and First Lean Senior Secure notes, as Karen noted, the company filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy on April 1st, 2019. CFO George Knight attributed the filing to Hexion's, quote, highly competitive industry with constant pressure on revenues and margins, plus, quote, near-term maturities of the majority of the debtor's funded debt. Those two factors, he said, declining liquidity and impending maturities, created an inflection point that required the debtors to commence restructuring discussions with their key economic constituents in the late fall of 2018. Now, there's also been significant group formation in this case, uh, with three major groups that you can see on the reorg site, uh, both in the advisors database and the 2019 statements database. An ad hoc firstly note holders group that reported April 29th holdings totaling $1.366 billion. That group includes GSO, Golden Tree, Capri, Davidson Kempner, Aristea, and others, represented by Aiken Gump. An ad hoc crossover group that reported April 29th total holdings of $1.359 billion, including Aurelius, Avenue, Cyrus, and other funds, represented by Millbank. And lastly, a one-and-a-half lien group with total holdings of $441.2 million. That's including three capital management, Southpaw, Asset Management, Nomura, and Brigade, represented by Jones Day. I should add that all these groups have uh, negligible holdings across... uh, across several issues of of debt. Karen? Thanks so much, Connor, uh, for setting the scene for us. And now I'm going to turn it over to our distressed debt analyst, Mark, as well as uh, our distressed debt legal analyst, Sean. And I think the first thing that we should ask Mark about is just to give us a quick refresher on Hexion's capital structure to flesh out that background. Mark, can you tell us a little bit about that? Uh, sure, Karen. So Hexion had about uh, $297 million in outstanding on its revolver when it filed and had about $2.4 billion in first lien debt, $225 million of one and a half lien debt, $574 million of second lien debt, and $263 million of unsecured bonds. Okay, great. Thanks, Mark. And you know that also gives us context for those creditor groups that Connor mentioned before. It gives you a sense of how significant they are in the case. Now, in late April, the Hexion debtors filed a Chapter 11 plan and disclosure statement that was in line with their pre-petition restructuring support agreement. Sean, turning it over to you, can you discuss that plan and disclosure your statement with us more? Sure thing. So you're right. Um, the uh, the plan disclosure statement pretty much in line with the RSA, um, which we've reported on previously. Um, as described in the disclosure statement, plan proposes to restructure uh, debtors' prepetition debt with the proceeds of um, new long-term exit financing in the amount of approximately $1.6 billion. Uh, We'll get back to that in a second. And a $300 million rights offering. Um, From a governance perspective, there's a board committee that will select the the directors for the the reorganized MD in consultation with CEO Craig Rogerson. And that board committee consists of note holders Cyrus, Monarch, 
Golden Tree, GSO, Brigade, and Davidson Kempner. So the details on the new debt exit facility uh, come more from the RSA motion uh, that you alluded to earlier. So the, the debtors filed a motion seeking approval to assume the RSA, which was entered into you know, immediately pre-petition, uh, as well as enter into certain backstop um, or commitment agreements. So that motion indicates that the uh, the debtors have obtained commitments to backstop uh, the entire amount of exit financing. However, that the debtors are also still seeking exit financing um, from third parties in an attempt to obtain, obtain more favorable terms. So according to the motion, uh, there's a, a defined term debt backstop facility um, setting out the, the terms under which those backstop commitments are being made. And the, uh, the motion provides that, uh, you know, there may be uh, a syndicated exit facility as well, in which case the liens on the backstop facility would be peri passu um, with any syndicated facility. But the, uh, the backstop commitment is for senior secured notes to be issued by Hexion Inc., uh, guaranteed by its U.S. subsidiaries and then any other subsidiaries that guarantee the debtors other exit financing. Uh, and that debt would be secured by liens and security interest in substantially all the assets of the obligors, um, subject to a, a few exceptions, and junior to the liens on the collateral securing the debtor's new ABL, so uh, short-term assets. Oh, and there's also uh, a make whole uh, slash redemption premium on the backstop facility. Uh, it's actually specified. There's a term sheet attached as an exhibit to the debtor's proposed form of debt backstop. Great. Thanks, Sean. And I also understand that the debtors have recently given updated numbers for the uh, level of creditor support for the RSA. What are Where are those numbers nowadays? That's right. So the debtors disclosed first in the disclosure statement that the RSA is now supported by holders of approximately 90% of the debt to be restructured. They actually left it in brackets in the disclosure statement um, saying 87% of the first lien notes were on board, 99% of the 1.5 liens, 97% of the second lien notes and 80% of the Borden debentures. Uh, and that was in line with a, a comment made by debtors counsel at the second day hearing. Okay. Let's also turn it over to Mark. Mark, what do we know about what the business will look like uh, after emergence from chapter 11? What have the debtors said about valuation? I know that you've been looking at a number of different materials. Thanks, Karen. So al although the debtors did not file projections or evaluation analysis with their disclosure statement, uh, terms of the RSA were structured under an, uh, under an assumed uh, total enterprise value of $3.1 billion. Uh, previously disclosed cleansing materials have shown projections from 2019 through 2023 uh, for Hexion, forecasting 2019 total revenues up 5.4% year over year to around 4 billion, 2019 EBITDA up 6.6% year over year to 470 million, and 2019 CapEx up 11.1% year over year to 100 million. Uh, the company's $1.6 billion exit facility 
uh, will make up the majority of its post-emergence capital structure. Great, thanks, Mark. So that is the vision of reorganized Hexion, as reflected in the des in the debtors' court documents, as well as other disclosures. Sean, what does that look like in terms of recovery rates for the different creditor groups, at least according to what the debtors have filed? Sure. So the debtors haven't said anything explicitly about uh, percentage recoveries. Uh, however, I mean they they do run through. Uh, the consideration to be received by each class. So holders of allowed first lien notes claims uh, will receive their pro rata share of $1.45 billion in cash. And that's net of any adequate protection payments made during the course of the case to those note holders. Uh, they're receiving non-default interest. And they will also receive 72.5% of the new common equity Subject to dilution, I'm sure is further detailed in Mark's upcoming waterfall model, and 72.5% of the rights to purchase additional new common equity pursuant to the rights offering, um, which is a, a side note is open to all holders in the class. Um, and then moving on, holders of junior notes claims, which again is a voting class that encompasses the 1.5 lien notes claims, second lien notes claims, and board and debenture claims, uh, they would receive their pro rata share of 27.5% of the new common equity subject to dilution and 27.5% of the rights. Um, general unsecured claims are to be paid in full, and there is no recovery for holders of equity interests, although uh, there is a management incentive program uh, that reserves upwards of 10% of um, post-reorganized new common equity. So I want to return to a, a story, an upcoming story from the team that you guys have alluded to a few times now, and that is that is the the upcoming waterfall story from Mark. Mark, I know that uh, you think that this story and your analysis may be responsive to some inquiries that we've re received from subscribers before. Do you do you mind walking us through some of those questions uh, from subscribers and how you think it'll relate to that waterfall model? Uh, sure. So just going off of kind of like what Sean had said, uh, because the first lien notes receive cash, uh, a percentage of the new Hexion common equity and a percentage of the rights offering, and the junior notes uh, claims also receive only a percentage of the new Hexion common equity and a percentage of the rights offering. Uh, we have been asked a, a lot about what dilutes the equity value. Um, so the things that dilute the equity value are the management incentive plan, the debt backstop obligation premium, and the equity backstop obligation um, all dilute the equity value. Uh, it varies, and without kind of going further into detail, uh, just because it's easier to show probably in, in the actual model and the analysis when we put it out, um, we should answer, be able to answer uh, those questions. And in addition to, uh, you know, the most common one, which has been what has been the range of recoveries uh, for the classes, and uh, which will be addressed in, in the, the waterfall story. Great, thanks, Mark. So now we're going. We're going to shift to Peter, our senior covenants analyst. Peter, uh, one really interesting aspect of the case is the Hexion debtors' filing of a motion seeking approval for some interestingly structured dip financing. 
The debtors themselves called the dip complicated. Uh, Judge Gross has now granted final approval of that dip at a hearing from this past week. Can you walk us through some of the main features of the dip and why it was unusual? Uh, sure. So, um, just in terms of uh, in terms of the negative covenant package, there was nothing kind of out of the, out of the ordinary there. You know, it was it was very uh, very restrictive as you would imagine. But what was very interesting and, and was relatively complicated was the guarantee and security package. Um, we had written about this um, before Hexion had filed, but um, uh, the company's capital structure had included these uh, these very old um, legacy Borden bonds, which had a negative pledge on the company's uh, principal property. So uh, before the company had filed, there was a huge there was a huge swath of assets that had been unencumbered, um, and it was, it was actually uh, you know a majority of their uh, PP&E. So, um, in order to avoid priming the the first lien notes in uh, after they filed for bankruptcy, uh, the dip facility is structured so as to avoid uh, priming their liens. How that played out in the documents is the borrower under the dip is actually Hexion's foreign subsidiary, Hexion International Holdings BV, and it will incur the the dip term loan, and it will provide an intercompany loan to Hexion. Uh, to, to Hexion in uh, Hexion US, um, the collateral securing the dip is all of those principal properties that had been previously subject to the board and bonds negative pledge, um, and it actually does not include any of the uh, any of the pre-petition collateral securing any of the company's notes. Um, there, there is a little additional collateral securing the dip, but I mean it's really just kind of the unencumbered. Assets that um, that again had not been uh, securing any of the pre-petition dip. Uh, dip. So um, you know, so the dip term loan essentially is an intercompany loan, and it is backed by all of this unencumbered property that had previously not been pledged. Thanks, Peter. Uh, and I think we should also mention that you know the debtors have called this dip complicated, and sometimes complicated or unusual can also mean contested or litigated. So I want to go back to Sean now to tell us, you know, whether that is what's happened in the case so far. Can you update us on what happened this week at the second day and final dip hearing? Were there points of dispute? Were there objections? Uh, has the case been going smoothly so far? So there was one objection to the dip uh, from the committee, although they even styled it as a limited dip objection, and uh, they were able to resolve uh, their issues with the debtors prior to the second day hearing. Uh, Judge Gross actually quipped at the beginning of the hearing that apparently the championship games are being played elsewhere today based on uh, a, a lesser number of attorneys sitting in front of him. Uh, the changes to the dip that the committee was looking for uh, really sort of, uh, you know, preventative or prophylactic if something were to go wrong with the RSA and the, uh, the related plan. So the committee obtained increased notice rights regarding DIP amendments and financial reporting um, and a set of more robust uh, challenge rights if the RSA were to terminate. Counsel for the UCC said that they will likely be supportive of the transactions embodied in the RSA and, and now the plan, um, but noted that any future support is premised on 
the current state of recovery for general unsecured claims, they're unimpaired under the plan. And the UCC said, you know, that has to has to stay the same for us to, to be on board, ultimately. Uh, the only other objection received at the second day hearing was from the U.S. trustee on certain critical vendor issues, but that was that was resolved. All right, so a very unusually structured dip, but progress in the case towards consensus and a largely uncontested second day and final dip hearing this week. Interesting. So I, the final question that I have for the group is, can you talk about the next steps in the case? What are you going to be looking out for going forward? Well, there are several hearing dates. Uh, set. So the next hearing is on May 15th at 3 p.m. And that will be the debtor's motion seeking authority to assume the RSA and enter into the debt and equity backstop agreements. Um, following that, we have a disclosure statement hearing on May 22nd at 9.30 a.m. Uh, all these times are in Eastern time. And then the debtors are also targeting a confirmation hearing on June 24th. So I'll also note that all of these dates are well within the milestones set out in the DIP, which require that the RSA be approved by May 31st, the disclosure statement be approved by June 30. So there's about a month of wiggle room there. And the confirmation hearing is required to commence by August 4th. So again, um, you know, plenty of headroom. Okay, wonderful. So we're looking at a confirmation timeline stretching into June, late June at least. Thank you so much to everybody, Connor, Mark, Peter, and Sean for discussing Hexion with us today. I'm going to hand it back to Connor to say, to end off the podcast. Thanks, Karen. And thank you for listening to another Reorg Weekly Review. As always, you can find all our podcasts on the site's media page, iTunes, and SoundCloud. This has been The Week in Reorg, and I'm Connor Skelding.